Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums to be, and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported, and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. On this week's episode of Beyond the Bump, we bring you part two of our encore with Dr. Timmy, who's an obstetrician, gynecologist, infertility specialist, and my dad. If you haven't listened to one of Dr. Timmy's episodes before, we recommend going back and listening to part one and part two of our first episode with him, and then part one of our encore with him as well, which was released last week. In this episode, he answers all of your questions on pregnancy, labor, and delivery, and postpartum questions. So we hope you enjoy. On to pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Straight in there. Can you give us some checkpoints to expect throughout pregnancy? Yeah, well, you, you found out that you're pregnant, and that might be a positive pregnancy test during an IVF cycle. It might be spontaneous pregnancy it might have been a pregnancy that was long awaited or it might have been a pregnancy that was a shock to you, but you're pregnant. Tick. So then by looking at the last menstrual date, a prediction would be made about the approximate gestation where, as I've already mentioned, it's 40 weeks, the first two weeks weeks of which you're not even pregnant, you're waiting to ovulate. So you would then make an appointment um, with your uh, pregnancy care provider, whether that be an obstetrician, a midwife, a hospital clinic, or whoever it is that's going to look after your pregnancy. You'll then be offered um, usually a series of investigations. Now, at that first visit, hopefully it can be established to some degree how many weeks pregnant you are because if you're already 20 weeks pregnant, then there's some tests that are now no longer indicated. But the average woman would present for her first pregnancy visit somewhere between 8 and 10 weeks. Mm -hmm. We would do blood tests, as I've already mentioned, for blood group, full blood examination, hep B, hep C, HIV, syphilis, rubella, and chickenpox, and a midstream urine test because 4% of women will have a urinary infection that doesn't have any symptoms, so an asymptomatic urinary tract infection, and that can be treated. And then we would offer the patient uh, the prepare test that I just mentioned if she hasn't already had it done for the genetic screening, and then they would be offered a first trimester screen for Down syndrome. Until recently, that was called um, the combined maternal serum screen, which involved a measurement on the baby's, the back of the baby's neck in conjunction with a blood test. But now the preferred method of Down syndrome detection is for a woman who's 10 weeks or more to have a blood test and as, as weird and as creepy as it sounds, they actually find the baby's DNA in the mother's circulation mm. of a 10-week fetus. I, I find that 
quite extraordinary. It is. And then that is subjected to a genetic analysis, concentrating mainly on the chromosomes 21, 13 and 18. And the reason they're concentrated on is because they're the only chromosomal abnormalities that can be associated with an ongoing pregnancy. In the case of chromosome 21, even the live birth of a Down syndrome child and 13 and 18 with pregnancies that can reach the second or even third trimester. Other conditions such as an extra chromosome, say two or 22 or something like that would miscarry. So the most important ones they're looking at there are because they could be associated with an ongoing pregnancy, which without the test may not have been diagnosed till later in the pregnancy. Mm -hmm. But I will say that these tests are becoming increasingly accurate and I have had results coming back with amazing chromosomal analysis just from a blood test on a woman. The other one, of course, that will give you is the baby's gender. So for someone who wanted to find out the baby's gender, they can find out usually four to five days after the test, which means they could know as early as 11 weeks in their pregnancy what the baby's gender was. That's then followed by an ultrasound at 12 to 13 weeks, which is an anatomical look at the baby. And for the first two trimesters of the pregnancy, you would be seeing your caregiver every four weeks. At about 28 weeks, where we're moving from the, uh, sorry, uh, at about 20 weeks at halfway, there's another ultrasound, quite simply to check the anatomy of your baby again. Now the baby's bigger and therefore all the organs are bigger. And then a sugar test for diabetes in pregnancy at about 28 weeks. A lot of doctors now would offer a growth scan at approximately 32 to 34 weeks. I don't want to be controversial about that, but you may or may not be suggested to have that scan. Mm. By 28 weeks, the visits go on to two weekly, and then by the end of the pregnancy, you'll usually be seen every week from approximately 36 weeks on. Why do some women experience spotting in early pregnancy? Well, the uterus has a massively increased blood flow even in the earliest parts of pregnancy. So at least 20% of women will have some bleeding in early pregnancy, some studies showing as high as 30%. Now, that may unfortunately be a miscarriage and they're having bleeding because they're miscarrying. In other cases, it will be bleeding from the cervix in particular, which now has a very high blood flow and therefore is more likely to create some blood stain spotting. Hmm. What pregnancy vitamins do you recommend someone who's pregnant <laughs> takes? Yeah, well, the most important one is folate. Um, it's very important to remember that the association between folate and spina bifida was recognised at the end of the Second World War, particularly in the poorest parts of England. And there was a spike in the spina bifida and what we call neural tube defect rate. And that was recognised to be due to the lack of folate because people weren't eating fresh fruit and vegetables 
and therefore they had very low folate levels. So whilst it, you know, I'm duty bound to recommend to all women to take folate in early pregnancy because it does reduce the risk of spina bifida and neural tube defects, don't panic if you find out you're pregnant and you were told, oh, you should have been on them for three months because in Australia we eat so much in the way of fresh fruit and vegetables. We eat, you know, very good quality food, so you're very unlikely to be uh, folate deficient. If you have a history of epilepsy or you're on epilepsy medication, the recommendations will be different. And clearly, if you have a past history of a baby with a neural tube defect, the recommendations will be different. Um, the other vitamins that are contained in the regular uh, pregnancy multivitamin supplements, look, they're good um, top-up vitamins and, and often in early pregnancy, people's diets change and often for the worse. Yes. So I'm not against them. However, they usually are very large tablets and a lot of women in the first trimester struggle to swallow them. Absolutely. Um, and that's where I'd recommend they just go to the chemist and get themselves a bottle of five milligram folate tablets. They are tiny tablets and cost, they are so inexpensive. And just until you feel you can swallow a multivitamin, just take the folate tablet. I felt so bad because I, with Yumi, was so sick that I couldn't take anything. Mm. I didn't eat. Well, the, I didn't have the, the pregnancy ones the are like a horse tablet. Yeah, mm. They're exactly. massive. And expensive. Mm, you know, it's, yeah. it's nearly $2 a day. Mm. Um, so I'm not against women taking multivitamins, but I'm certainly not um, going to talk down to a woman who's come along and hasn't started taking them because she only just found out mm. she was pregnant. It's a shame that generally the people who can't eat well in the first trimester are generally the same people who can't stomach the multivitamins yeah. as well. That's exactly. kind of a double, so, double-edged sword or a double-ended a sword. <laughs> a good trick there yeah. is the folate tablets because really I'm telling you, you could crush one of those folate tablets and, snort it. and you, you wouldn't even know you'd swallow it. <laughs> Yeah. This foods. is a big one. Foods. What foods should a woman stay away from whilst pregnant? Yeah, well, look, that's a huge topic, as you know, and talked about a lot. And most of the food issue revolves around listeriosis, although uh, mercury is another one. But, but dealing with listeriosis first, I think there's a lot of hysteria about listeriosis that isn't justified. Um, and I hysteria, 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 hysteria. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to put it into context, I've been doing obstetrics and gynae, if you include my training and my specialist career, for 30 years, and I've seen one case of listeria in my career. And in fact, that was a patient who. I was looking after on behalf of another doctor while she was on holidays. <laughs> so, so really, if it you hadn't had not. been for that colleague's holiday, I never would have seen one. Wow. So, I think whilst I recognise that there are uh, a certain foods that are at higher risk of listeriosis and you know soft cheeses and deli um, salami salamis and and things like that, I just want to say to you. 
very emphatically that the chances of you getting listeria in pregnancy in Australia is astronomically low. And the cases that occur are usually where people have bought cheeses or other milk-based products that have not been pasteurised, and that's usually when they've bought them at like a country market. There was a big um, breakout of listeriosis in Victoria about 10 or 15 years ago where some cheese at a market was contaminated with listeria, and I think four people died as a result, not pregnancy-related. Um, so my strongest advice with regard to listeria in pregnancy is just think about would I eat this whether I was pregnant or not. So if it's some dodgy <laughs> milk bar or delicatessen where you think Petal that station. salad <laughs> might have been sitting there for three days, then of course no. But if it's the cheese section at your local Woolworths or Coles, uh, you know, that that is all within its expiry date. It's all pasteurised. It's all, you know, been, been handled properly from origin to distribution. What about sushi, though? People go cray-cray that sushi and uh, rice it, it's, is... It's the rice at room temperature that freaks me yeah. out. Yeah. More well, so than the raw fish. No, no, no. I'm talking about the rice. Yeah. Because don't they so say... So I, I, I would say to so. you, if you're, if you're not comfortable eating those things, and I think most of us could survive for sort of eight months without sushi... Um, Dad, Dad could survive. How many years and, old are you uh, now? <laughs> I've survived 57 years without it and no intention of breaking into that market. But um, if you don't feel comfortable with it, of course don't do it. But one thing, like I, I have patients say to me, oh, you know, I can't have a pizza because it's got delicatessen meat on it. Well, of course you can because anything that is hot kills listeria. So when you prepare food, you, you should put it in the refrigerator within an hour and be careful with reheating food that that's been properly refrigerated and then properly reheated. But that's at home, so you're in control of that. And, yeah, if you want, you know, as I say, I have a lot of sushi-eating patients and I haven't seen any listeria in yeah. them. And so I just... I would like to dispel some of the, the real fears. The other one that, that recently happened to me was a, a woman who I just delivered her baby and she was sending her husband out immediately to get her a soft serve from um, McDonald's and I was able to reassure her that, in fact, she could have eaten it throughout the pregnancy. The reason listeria occurs in soft serve ice cream is because a lot of the people who own soft serve ice cream vans turn the refrigeration on in the morning. It whips the ice cream up until it becomes soft serve. They go down to the beach, they sell their ice creams, they come home, they turn the van off, and then they turn it on again the next morning. <laughs> McDonald's Whereas doesn't McDonald's do that. <laughs> will I, should, I shouldn't say McDonald's, but like, you know, big-time commercial retailers of soft serve clean out their soft serve um, containers every day. They're selling it in huge quantities and you won't get listeriosis from it. You might get fat, but you won't get listeriosis <laughs> It might have been good that you had nine months off it yeah. anyway. Yeah. What about dyeing your hair while you're pregnant? A very common question, um, one of the commonest ones. Absolutely safe 
at any stage of pregnancy. The absorption through the skin of hair dye is totally negligible and I'm happy for you to dye your hair at any stage of pregnancy. That, that, that comes along with a, with a group of questions that I get asked. Dyeing hair, fake tan, laser hair removal, you know, all safe in pregnancy. Some people, instead of fake tan, use um, uh, melaton injections. I wouldn't recommend that because the reason we're saying dyeing your hair is safe is because there's so little absorption into your circulation, whereas if you inject something mm-hmm. into your bloodstream, well, then, of course, it's going The aim the is that you well. want it to be absorbed, yeah. yeah. What about... And laser um, hair removal is so shallow that um, it can't possibly have any effect on a pregnancy. And what about Botox and all those ones? Well, I don't think many Botox practitioners would be happy to inject what is a bacterial toxin Mm. into a woman when she's pregnant. Um, I'm unaware of any studies that say that it is either safe or unsafe or it is associated with any known fetal abnormality or pregnancy complication. But it is a very common question postnatally, when can I go back and have Botox? When can I go back and have fake tan? Questions like that. But personally, if it was my patient, I would encourage her to avoid Botox during pregnancy. However, I have had patients come to me who've already had it and say, should they panic? And I say, I have no evidence to suggest that it will cause any harm. One of the most annoying things is when a patient comes and says, I want you to sign this, give me a certificate to say that I can have Botox. Mm. And because my my Botox doctor won't do it unless you give me a certificate to say it's safe. So I then explain back to the patient, So what you're actually asking me to do is take all responsibility Mm -hmm. for something that you're paying someone else to do to you. Why don't you get them to tell you it's safe and pay them rather than come and see me and tell me to take all the responsibility for something that I didn't even do to you? And something that has really nothing to do with it. And, you know, like these treatments... They have been around for a long time, I mean, longer than you'd imagine, Mm. and therefore I think if there was some sort of um, sudden surge in any particular problem... um, It would have been detected. It would have been detected. Any risks or adverse effects of ondansetron or what some people may know as Zofran wafers? No, I'm, um, I'm... I'm a prescriber of Zofran during pregnancy. I'm a taker. I'm a taker too. (laughs) And with great delight on Sophie's face in her pregnancy with Poppy, I used to, each time I visited, bring up a few packets of Zofran with me as a gift. Uh, That ain't ain't cheap. That ain't cheap. It's for nausea and vomiting for anyone that doesn't know. No, it's safe to use in pregnancy, has been used by millions of women in pregnancy. The main side effect of Zofran is severe constipation. And in the first trimester, you may find that you're very prone to constipation anyway. So to add to that something like Zofran you know, is going to put you at significant risk of severe constipation. And don't underestimate 
the other methods, for example, the use of vitamin B6, the use of ginger-containing substances, um, the use of antihistamines, particularly the first-generation antihistamines like polyramine. The main problem with the first-generation antihistamines is that they are very sedating. So it would be the sort of thing you would take in pregnancy at night um, because you'll probably find it will make you a bit tired and you're probably already tired so from tired. being pregnant. Um, I guess if you've got insomnia with it, that could be a good thing. That said, I'm not saying you can't take second-generation antihistamines like Zyrtec and Claritine. However, they'll be great for your hay fever but not so great for your nausea. Right. What happens if you sleep on your back when pregnant? Well, it's interesting because there's a... There's an initiative occurring in Victoria at the moment to try and reduce the rate of miscarriage in Victoria. There was a bit of a disaster at one of the hospitals which led to sort of a state inquiry into stillbirth and they've come up with a number of objectives to um, try and reduce the risk of stillbirth in Victoria. And I find this quite frustrating and I have voiced this at meetings that I've been to at the hospitals, the hospital that I deliver babies at. And, and some of the checkpoints on that are encouraging women not to sleep on their back despite a complete lack of any credible evidence that lying on your back increases your risk of stillbirth. There is a study that was published which was an extremely poor retrospective study that I don't believe should be used to justify any scientific proof that you can't lie on your back. The second thing they said was reporting fetal movements. Now, on the one hand, I would say that studies that look at fetal movements, including doing charts of fetal movements, again, there's never been good evidence that they um, have a good detection rate or prediction rate of stillbirth. However, I would say that I have absolute faith in women's intuition about their pregnancy. And if a woman was to say to me, I'm worried about how much my baby's moving, well, then I'm worried too until I'm convinced by some other test, test like a CTG or an ultrasound, that that baby's fine. So I think the first two categories of their initiative are very poorly supported and the most profound changes that can be made are not smoking when you're pregnant or being in a smoke-filled environment mm. and that, of course, as you know, is also associated with an increased risk of uh, cop death or sudden infant death and um, also the elephant in the room whenever I'm in the room talking about stillbirth is the increased risk of stillbirth when people go a long way overdue. They haven't included that in the information because that's sort of unpalatable to their readership that, oh, you shouldn't go a long way overdue because that's medical intervention, but it's okay to put in it, don't lie on your back and monitor fetal movements where there's very poor evidence. So I find that all a little frustrating. And also, I don't want you to underestimate that if I sit here and say, yes, lying on your back can increase your risk of stillbirth, then any woman listening to this podcast who's had a stillbirth 
is going to think, you know what, I'm pretty sure sometimes at night I rolled over and lay <laughs> on my back and I'm probably responsible for my stillbirth. So to anyone who's been in that situation who's had a stillbirth, from me I would say it had absolutely nothing to do yeah. with your stillbirth. And the line I say to my patients is that how could humans be so fundamentally misdesigned that they would kill their baby by lying on their back when when a human is asleep, they don't know what position they're lying in. Mm. Oh. The theory is that the blood returns from the lower half of your body through the inferior vena cava, which is like the biggest vein mm. in your body. It's like the equivalent of the aorta. Mm -hmm. And that when you lie flat on your back, you lie on that, which means the venous return to your heart is lower, therefore the output from your mm. heart is lower. Now, let me clarify this, and this is very important. When you're in labour, we definitely get you to avoid lying flat on your back because labour is a stress to your baby to start with, mm. let alone poorer return to the heart. The other time we absolutely avoid you lying flat on your back is if you've had an epidural or a spinal anaesthetic because that causes your veins to dilate, which means the amount of blood volume in your circulation suddenly drops. That's why so many people faint or have a very low blood pressure when an anaesthetic is put in in labour. So if you then were to add to that by rolling the patient flat on her back and reducing her venous return, that's going to be just multiplying the problem. So, yes, there are situations where we won't, won't lie you flat on your back, but I'm just saying to say to a pregnant woman, you know, all through your pregnancy, don't lie on your back. It, it's just, you know, I have patients who come along whose husbands like will wake them up in the night and say, roll over, roll over. Um, <laughs> I have a husband that just sleeps. <laughs> like a lug. Any risks of lots of ultrasound scans during your pregnancy? Yeah, that well, that one came out a long time ago. That no ultrasound is safe in pregnancy, and and quite ironically, to answer that question, the highest risk pregnancies get the most ultrasounds. Yeah. So it's clearly mm. safe in pregnancy. Good. Once you have three girls, for example, me, <laughs> are you more likely to have another girl next? That's a very good question. Whoever wrote that in, it wasn't me. I'm not having any. 50%. 50% always. Yeah. Um, I, I think I do recall actually saying in, in one of the earlier podcasts, when a guy ejaculates, there can be certainly half a billion and even up to a billion sperm in that ejaculate half of which will have an X chromosome and half of which will have a Y. So to think that, like, there's any but, propensity for X or Y chromosomes to get to the egg is a bit Well, crazy. I just thought maybe some men could have more X than Y or something. No, because, see, every cell in their body has an X and a Y. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, so when they say there's girls throughout that family, that's just Complete coincidence. Yeah, and, and for every one of those families, there's a family with boys all through the yeah. family. Um, we touched and on. I don't mean to sound like a cynic. I, I don't want to sound like, oh, but, but, you know, people with their stupid ideas. I'm not a cynic at all, and I'm very sympathetic to people's sort of um, what they hear and what they read about. I, I, just, I just feel that if I'm on here as a doctor, I've got to give you like a sensible answer yeah, 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 yeah. and the sensible answer is that 
for every family that has three girls and then a boy, there's mm. a family that has three exactly. boys and then a girl. Yeah. So go again, get the boy. No, thanks. And you might get a girl. We touched on blood groups before, but can you explain yeah, what yeah. a negative blood group is and what the implications of that are? Yeah, well, one of my great mentors, Professor Bishop, who taught me when I was a young ONG trainee, was heavily involved in the rhesus unit at the Royal at the um, Queen Victoria Hospital when he was a young man, even younger than I am now. But fortunately, due to the invention of a an injection called anti-D, we hardly see any rhesus problems anymore. So the story is this. If the woman who's pregnant has a negative blood group and her pregnancy has a positive blood group, and that can happen because you only need one of the two blood group genes to be positive. So, of course, the the pregnant woman will have contributed a negative blood group gene because two out of two of hers are positive, are negative. Her husband may have a positive blood group, which is two positive genes or one negative and one positive gene, but he's still positive. So if that baby's positive and any of its blood escapes into that pregnant lady's circulation, she will produce antibodies. She will recognise it as foreign. And to, to really simplify this whole situation, the reason why that causes a problem is that the rhesus genes are only expressed on blood cells. So if you form a reaction to positive blood cells, those immunoglobulins will attack blood cells and nothing else. So it very rarely causes a problem in the first pregnancy, but in a subsequent pregnancy, that lady may mount an immune response to mm. positive cells that then does have an effect on the pregnancy. So to answer your question about what you would do is we would find out the blood group, as we've already mentioned, at a pre-pregnancy visit or at the first pregnancy visit. Second, if there was any bleeding or threatened miscarriage or problems in the first pregnant first trimester, or indeed if that woman did have a miscarriage in the first trimester, we will give them the injection of anti-D, and I'll explain what that does. And then we give further injections of anti-D at approximately 28 and 34 weeks gestation. And then when the baby's born, we check the baby's blood group. If the baby's blood group is negative, nothing is required to be done because it couldn't possibly have released any positive blood cells. And if the baby's blood group is positive, we give the lady a further injection of anti-D. Now, anti-D basically works by going into that woman's circulation and mopping up positive blood cells so that the woman won't create a response to positive blood cells. That's incredible. And so oh. this is a condition that in Australia in the last 50 years has basically been eradicated as a problem. I, I don't, I've seen women with positive antibody counts, but there used to be whole clinics at hospitals dedicated to um, women with rhesus isoimmunisation. There used to be babies that used to have 
transfusions in utero for their anemia while they were still in the uterus. Far out. And then there was, of course, the babies that had to have a complete blood transfusion when they were born. And now you just never see it anymore because it just, you know, it just doesn't happen anymore. Mm. Do any natural induction techniques work, i.e. raspberry leaf or dates, evening primrose, castor oil? (laughs) No, I, I don't feel that I could professionally say there's any evidence that any of them work. They're usually taken by people very close to the end of their pregnancy, so they have a very significant built-in success rate um, because um, like any cure for the common cold, you always get better anyway. So uh, taking those things, it won't do any harm, although some taste horrible. Oh, castor oil, you might shit yourself. <laughs> it, it, it won't bring on labour, Okay. And thoughts on stretch and sweeps. When should they be done? When do they work? I have no opposition to people doing a stretch and sweep. However, I would say, and it is usually done at term in a woman who's hopefully trying to avoid being induced. My feeling in my own practice is that it tends to cause women to have a very irritable uterus and quite often have some bleeding or a show. So they end up then having a very sleepless, stressful night, sort of not quite in labour and not quite not in labour and ending up having to ring the labour ward and often having to come in. So my attitude would be if you want to be induced be induced, and if you don't want to be induced, don't be induced. Don't do something that you feel better about because it's not called being induced because, let's face it, if stretch and sweep works, then that's induction. <laughs> yeah, it worked for me. It worked th- the two times for me, and I, I, if I had a fourth, I would 100% do it again. It, I would get to 38 weeks and... I felt like my body and everything was just towards that end. And every time I would get just one stretch and sweep, it was about, I think, six hours later, I would go into cramping and I was in in proper labour. It was incredible. So I would call that an induction. Yeah, yeah, and that was my personal Mm -hmm. choice that I found. And you said that you like the the other way where you go in. and I've never had a stretch and sweep before. Mm, Yeah. Yes, yeah, so, so let me say I certainly have nothing against it. And, of course, when people are being induced, I mean, there's a, there's a, a huge range of seriousness of what that induction is for. Are they being induced because they're, you know, they're a bit sick of the pregnancy and they're 39 weeks or have they got fulminating preeclampsia mm. and need to be delivered immediately? Mm. I mean, you know, we've got to keep in mind why why we're doing the induction. Does perineal massage help at all with avoiding tearing? I don't believe that perineal massage works in the way that, um, you know, Dizzy Gillespie has massive cheeks from blowing a trumpet all his life, and which is, is what the theory is. Mm. And in, in medicine, in plastic surgery, we use um, tissue expanders. So you, you put a, a fluid-containing 
device under the skin and you then gradually put fluid into that and the skin stretches over it and then later on in reconstructive surgery that extra skin can be used as a flap. Doing perineal massage couldn't possibly have that effect in the sort of time frame that we're talking about. However, perineal massage will make, first of all, let me say, many women would not be comfortable doing that and wouldn't feel comfortable performing perineal massage on themselves. So I would say to them, don't worry, don't do it, that's fine. But if somebody is motivated to do it, I will say that it does give them probably a more localised understanding of where their perineum yeah. is so that when they're in labour and they're pushing, they'll, they'll know the feeling of the stretching in the perineum. And as I explained on a previous podcast, if you can be aware and listen as the head is passing across the perineum, it will certainly reduce the amount of risk done, uh, the amount of damage done in the delivery of the baby's Mm. head. So I'm not against perineal massage. I just don't believe that it causes the skin to truly stretch. And the evidence that was published in support of the EpiNo, which Mm. is a um, device that you insert into your vagina and expand, was comically just, (laughs) it was funny to read. It was so unscientific. Mm. Risks and recommendations for group B strep. Yeah, well, that's a a good question to ask me this year because I'm just into my 14th month of testing for group B strep. I went through my entire career without doing group B strep swabs and I've now started doing them. But interestingly, I haven't started doing them because I've suddenly been convinced they're right or because I have to or because new evidence has come to ground. The reason I do it is that I work at a, you know, a big, busy hospital with a lot of doctors and the overwhelming number of doctors at that hospital do group B strep swabs and I believe obstetric care is safer if as many doctors as possible use the same protocols of management. So I've decided to use the protocol of management of group B strep where you swab the patient at 36 to 37 weeks. However, if your doctor doesn't swab you for group B strep, don't worry because the non-swabbing protocol takes into account group B strep and is very safe and I didn't have a problem with group B strep in the 20 years of practice that I had where I didn't do group B strep swabs. And the controversy around the swabbing, is that because it's a pathogen that can be there and then a couple of weeks later no longer be there? Is that what Yeah, the- well, the, the, the controversy is that if a woman gives birth to a baby after 37 weeks gestation, in other words, term, even if there is group B strep in her vagina, the likelihood of her baby getting a group B strep-related disease, either pneumonia or meningitis, is very, very low. Therefore, another protocol, and the way I've always done it before, was if you deliver before 37 weeks, you have antibiotics, Mm. whether you've been swabbed or not. Mm. And if you have multiple vaginal examinations during your labour, 
or you have a very prolonged labour, particularly prolonged ruptured membranes, or if you have an emergency caesarean section, then you have antibiotics then. With the swabbing technique, obviously someone who went into labour before they'd been swabbed will be before 37 weeks, so they will have antibiotics. And if they are over 37 weeks and they're positive, they have antibiotics. The problem is the antibiotic is penicillin and therefore a small number of those women will have a profound, indeed anaphylactic, reaction to penicillin, which could be argued wasn't needed. Yeah. And therefore that can be a catastrophic event yeah. for both mother and baby. Yeah. And is this the um, the test where they put the Q-tip up your butthole and Will you do it vagina? yourself? Did you do it yourself? Yeah. Yeah. But, but you have to Sorry, up when you said you did, I was like, well, who is No, I mean like general, oh, actually, general, generally really, speaking. That, that is actually uh, as much as it's not a pleasant thing to talk about, that is really encouraging to hear because all the research that has any merit on swabbing for group B strep, there was both a vaginal and an anal swab done. And yet most doctors who sort of, you know, vow and declare they do do group B strep screening only do a vaginal swab, which means that they're actually not fully taking part in the way it's meant to be done. And in my own practice, I do the swab myself. So at that visit, I will examine the patient. I'll do the swab because it's not an uncomfortable swab. It's a tiny Q-tip and you only have to put it just inside the vagina and just around the anus and send them off as two different swabs. So I I decided if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it properly. So as unpleasant as that sounds, it's I'm, I'm really happy to hear you had it done properly. Okay, labour. Thoughts on patients that do calm birthing or hypnobirthing? Yeah, a lot of patients that I look after do more so calm birthing, birthing than hypnobirthing. And the feedback I've got from those patients, of course, I haven't been to a class, so I, I don't know specifically what's said to them, but calm birthing, hypnobirthing, Pilates, yoga all have in common that at the basis of them is breathing. And I think that people who who can focus on their breathing and concentrate on their breathing have a big advantage in labour. And even postnatally, if you're, if you're panicking because your baby's been crying for hours, to be able to learn the skill of just being able to stop, slow your breathing down, calm your mind down, slow your thoughts down is a good thing. So if calm birthing or hypnobirthing classes become a vehicle for like anti-medicalization of pregnancy, I'm against them. But if they're all about calm birthing and and breathing and coping with your labor better, then of course I'm all for them. I think you had a really good experience with your yeah. calm birthing class and and therefore, again, I don't want to sound cynical against it because I'm not and I get asked the question a lot and I'm actually quite encouraging of it. What actually is an internal exam and how's it performed and what should someone expect? Yeah, well, that 
that's a good insightful question for particularly for a person having a um, a first baby. I mean, an internal examination can probably really be performed with the patient in any position. So certainly late in the labour, if the patient was on all fours or on her side, um, it could still be performed as a vaginal examination in those positions. But earlier in the labour, usually the patient is lying on their back, a bit like they were going to have a pap smear. Yep. And the patient, uh, the doctor would examine the patient, of course, with gloves and with um, antiseptic lubricant. And they're basically feeling the cervix for the following. They're feeling what is the presenting part. And of course, we're hoping that's the head. Where is the cervix? Is it, is it towards the front of the vagina or is it towards the back of the vagina or is it in the middle? Is the cervix dilated at all? And that can be anything from closed to fully dilated, which is usually referred to as 10 centimetres. And how low is the presenting part? So, again, of course, we're hoping that's the head. And at the start of labour, the head will be what's called above spines and then it will move down two spines and then... When the baby is below spines, that's an anatomical landmark in the pelvis. That usually means it's in a position where it could safely be delivered with forceps or vacuum because it's well enough down. And, of course, as labour goes on, the vaginal examination will also give us more information is the waters. You'd see the waters draining. Are they meconium stained, blood stained or clear? And is the head swollen? Because if the labour isn't going well and, and the baby's getting stuck, they will often form quite a large swelling on the top of their head. And also the um, bony plates of the skull will tend to start overlapping each other. And then, of course, um, further on in labour than, than the earliest examinations, we will be able to tell what position the baby's in. So is the baby in a, a good position for delivery, which is usually referred to as an anterior position? So the baby's head is with the back of the head towards the front of the patient, towards the pubic bone, and the baby's front of the head or face is towards the back of the patient or spine. Great. And speaking of that position, can a baby turn to posterior or change position at any time? At any time. Like labour, I often get asked in the rooms towards term, you know, is the baby in a good position? And I know the patient is talking about is it in a posterior position Mm. or, or not. Labour is a very dynamic process, so it's not like a basketball falling through a hoop where no matter which way round the basketball is, it falls through the hoop. Labour is about fitting an unevenly shaped thing through the pelvis, so the head actually rotates as it goes through the pelvis. So sometimes, unfortunately, the head will rotate into a poorer position as it comes down, but more commonly it will rotate into a better position as it comes down Mm -hmm. and facilitate delivery. Moving on to delivery. Delivery. What are your thoughts on the delayed cord clamping? We basically routinely do delayed cord clamping now, and 
there's been quite a bit of study done on it, looking at um, outcomes that are difficult to measure. So it's very difficult to get good evidence. So let me say this first. It's not always possible to delay cord camping. It may be that the cord is so tightly around the baby's neck that we have to cut the cord to deliver the baby. Mm. So in that circumstance, please, as a woman giving birth, don't feel, oh, my baby missed out on delayed cord clamping. Also, if a baby needs to be resuscitated, it's clear that the baby is very unwell, we might cut the cord. However, resuscitation trolleys are now being introduced that can be wheeled right up beside the mother so that the baby can be resuscitated with the cord unclamped, Mm. with the theory being that until that cord stops pulsing, there is oxygen being pumped into that Mm -hmm. baby. So if the baby's not breathing and the cord's still pumping, that baby's still getting some oxygen. Because I guess of all the babies that need it, they're the ones that need it, yet they're the ones that are being taken away. So so there are now resuscitation cots that sort of like wheel right up beside the patient and so the, the obstetrician will deliver the baby, pass the baby onto the resuscitation equipment and and wait for the cord to stop pulsing before they cut it. As I say, it's become far more routine to, to, to just delay cutting the cord. So at a vaginal birth, just lift the baby up onto the onto the woman's tummy and you know and and she can cuddle the baby and there's usually enough length of cord there for the baby to make it up there. And then, and then just don't squeeze the cord because that will actually stop it pulsing because it will spasm. But usually I just have the cord gently lying across my hand and I can feel when it stops mm. pulsing. The other time you might cut the cord and get a move on with things if there's heavy bleeding. Yeah. So if a woman's bleeding really heavily, you really want to get that placenta mm. delivered and get on with figuring out is she bleeding from the vagina or the uterus we need to get on because every minute we're losing here, we're losing more blood. Yeah. And one step further from that, what is a lotus birth and what are your thoughts on lotus birth? Yeah, lotus birth is where you you basically never cut the cord. You leave the um, cord attached and the placenta on the end of that cord and then you put the placenta in a little bag and then eventually, like um, happens when you've got the little cord clamp on your baby, the little stump of the cord falls at the umbilicus off. falls off and the and the um, placenta falls How long off for? with it. I usually around about the same timing as, um, as the, your so cord like, clamp would fall off. So you're it could be carrying around your placenta attached to your child for over a week. It could it could be that I think is it a common here we is are this a common method two hours into our third episode I don't even really need to tell you what I think of that <laughs> yeah okay we'll move on we'll move on what are your thoughts on cord blood storing controversial one mainly because it's so expensive mm. in an ideal world is this a capsule thing or not is this different. No, no, you're talking no, encapsulation. This oh, okay. is where they take blood from. You can explain. Yeah. That. So some women will choose um, to have cord blood storage, and now 
It also includes cord storage. So when you deliver the baby before you deliver the placenta, you insert a needle in a, in a set that's given to you by the cord blood people and fill a little bag with blood that's very similar to the sort of bag of blood you donate if you're donating blood at a, at a blood bank. Mm. And then if the patient has also done the cord sample, you cut a length of cord and put it in a jar and then that's taken off and stored and then it's felt that perhaps in the future the cells in that cord blood or in the cord could be used for medical treatments in the future under that huge umbrella referred to as stem cell treatment. Mm. The advice I give my patients is this. I don't believe there's enough clinical evidence yet to justify spending $3,000 on getting cord blood and cord tissue stored when there's not enough proven application. And my suspicion is because cord blood in general is so easy to get our hands on that in the future, if there is treatments related to stem cells or cord blood, it will probably be just done from pooled like stem cells, not from your own baby stem yeah. cells. Mm. I'd hate to be wrong in the future and have a patient that came back to me and said, you know, eight years later, you know, my, my child has leukemia and the doctor said, why didn't I store cord blood? But I can only work on the present and I have the deepest respect for the people who are engaging in research on the use of stem cells and cord blood in diabetes prevention, in cerebral palsy prevention, and I'm not against people doing it, but I, I, you know, it's not something that I yeah. would strongly recommend. And and one question I get asked is, did did my own children do it? And my answer to that is no, I didn't encourage them to do it. And then when they say, well, wouldn't you get it for free? I say, but if I accepted my own children to get their cord blood stored for free, I'm then compelled to encourage all my mm. patients to do it because that's like a transaction. Yeah, that's so, like Timmy doing a sponsored post. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, I don't encourage it, but I'm happy to do it. And, indeed, if, any, if anyone was to claim that there was a, a, a conflict of interest, um, we actually do get paid to collect the cord blood by the cord blood company. So when I'm saying to a patient, look, I really can't justify you spending $3,000 on this. I'm doing myself out of a small, a very small amount of that. Yeah. But I, I But if anything, you'd be swayed the other way. But yeah. if treatments do arise that involve cord blood, don't worry. It'll be very quickly coming down in price yeah. and it will be very quickly brought to our attention that we should be encouraging yeah. that. Thoughts on multiple caesareans and how many is too many? Oh, studies out of countries where people have a lot of babies, like, for example, Ireland, which is a country that has always been at the forefront of obstetric research. One of the greatest obstetricians who ever lived died recently, Professor Ma, whose son I work with in Australia. Ireland's always been a home of extremely good obstetric care, but also 
extremely big families. Yeah. So, um, you know, nine, ten caesareans would not be uncommon. And I've done eight caesareans. Actually, I can't say I did eight caesareans. I did a lady's seventh and eighth yeah. caesarean. So, no, I... The limit would only come if there was a complication in the previous pregnancy. The limit would come with that many children. Yeah, yeah that's, that's true. <laughs> I think the amount of children is being capped for well, the cesareans. There are. is an interesting anecdote to that, that in the very orthodox Jewish community where they do have extremely yeah. large families, uh, you know, 14, 15 children, they do, you know, really endeavour in every possible way to great extremes to avoid cesarean section, uh, particularly in the first couple of mm. births um, because that could create Issues. complications, so many deliveries down the line. Thoughts on maternal-assisted cesareans and what is that? Mm. Yeah, um, there was a doctor. I'm looking out for you. I say there was. I hope he's still there. Uh, A doctor in Sydney who managed to get on a current affair with that, and um, where you actually have the patient put on these very long gloves so that she can reach over the drapes and sort of, as the head's coming out, reach down, put her hands under the baby's armpits, and lift the baby up onto her chest and look. I that that is actually if you visualize that something that I really try and encourage my patients to do who have vaginal births it, I, I think patients are blown away by the experience of like holding their baby under its arms when it's still half inside them and sort of with me making sure the baby doesn't <laughs> yeah. get dropped just sort of lifting it up onto their tummy but a cesarean is a different thing. That, that, that is a surgical procedure with risk of, of um, infection. Numb? Pretty much. Uh, not in the arms. I, I would tend to cynically refer to that as marketing, not medicine. Okay. What is the vitamin K injection for and is it necessary in a straightforward birth? Oh, yeah, it's got nothing to do with the straightforwardness of the birth. Some babies are born with deficiencies in some of the um, clotting pathway and vitamin K is given to reduce the risk of neonatal hemorrhage and therefore it's uh, it's not a vaccination, it's it's vitamin K and it's given to babies virtually immediately after birth, still in the labour ward. And it's to encourage um, normal blood clotting while the baby is developing its own clotting factors. And indeed, as you'd expect, when there was a fashion for not giving vitamin K, a, a study was published in the early 1990s that suggested that vitamin K injections were associated with an increased risk of childhood malignancies People refused vitamin K injections and then, of course, the study is then discredited and so all the people not having vitamin K are having that on the basis of something that's not true and, of course, the rate of neonatal hemorrhage went up. Some people at that stage would have oral vitamin K for the baby, which involves giving the baby three oral doses of vitamin K. I can reassure people that... uh, 
there is no danger in the one injection. And indeed, sometimes we even find giving the baby at birth their vitamin K and hep B injections gives them like a good loud cry and really helps clear their airways. Mm. And, um, and there can actually be sort of a therapeutic effect <laughs> from the injection just by sticking a pin in them. Yeah. Why do some women not feel the urge to push? I know. Not because of an epidural. Oh. It would be, it would be. <laughs> Simmer down. I mean, the answer to not feeling an urge to push would be anesthetic, as in epidural or spinal anesthetic. Although I must say, most women who are fully dilated will have an urge to push regardless of or that. Or not so, fully dilated um, over here. I felt yeah, it from that way was, to go. That was actually going to be my answer. I, I don't know that I've ever experienced a patient with no urge to push. Some women are, require an instrumental delivery because they've run out of urge to push, like yeah, they're, they're, they're exhausted. exhausted. Um, but a much bigger worry is women who have an urge to push when they're not fully dilated and pushing against a not fully dilated cervix can cause problems. So I, I would say that actually... The bigger um, concern is the, the other way. The bigger concern is the other way around and that it is important if if there's even a shadow of a doubt to check that the woman is fully dilated before she starts pushing, unless, of course, the head's on view mm. and you know, <laughs> be, you know that, Let me just get up to the surface. Yeah. Um, but um, if a woman, particularly a multi-gravid woman, like a woman having other than her first baby, has the urge to push, I think it is worth checking that they are fully dilated before getting them to push. Yeah. And is it true that you can sneeze out a baby? Well, I nearly did. <laughs> when I was a young trainee, the first breech baby I ever delivered, because that was back in the days when breech deliveries were more common. Legs? So the or can be legs or bottom? Bottom first. Okay, so yeah. bottom, yeah, yeah, head yeah, up. So the lady, I was called to the labour ward. I was a very young resident. The lady was lying on the bed, fully dilated, ready to push. She vomited and the baby was on the bed. Wow. So I got to do my first breech delivery without actually touching the baby until after it was out. <laughs> oh, my, that's So it. sneezing and vomiting do cause, cause greatly raised intra-abdominal pressure and will push a baby. Amazing. Why is vomiting so common in labour? Is it just because all kinds really, of shit's just going on? Yeah, we don't really know horrendous. the true mechanism of the in incentive to vomit so why do women get vomiting in early pregnancy mm. why do some medications like pethidine and mm. morphine make people vomit mm. you do have a an area at the base of your brain called the chemoreceptor trigger zone which in each individual will respond to certain stimuli to make you feel like vomiting but um Vomiting after birth is commonly due to the oxytocin given for the third stage for the delivery of the placenta. But, you know, we just find a lot of women feel like vomiting after delivery. Mm. When you imagine the physiological changes that are happening oh, yeah. in a woman when she's get, just given birth, it's hardly surprising yeah. she might want to vomit. And also she may have been eating and drinking during her labour and not really digesting mm, that at mm. all. So she now has a stomach full of, say, 
you know, um, Maccas. <laughs> like snakes and, um, and, yeah, and lollies and, and, um, you know, like those drinks, salty drinks. Mm. And then their stomach's still full. So they vomit it mm. all up, but, uh, certainly not a worry. And we would give them an anti-vomiting medication. So postpartum, what causes blood clots after giving birth and are they common? Well, it would depend on when after birth, but so the uterus won't fully involute for, for some time. Indeed, you could say it's months before yeah. a uterus is back to the size it's going to be from then on because the uterus will be bigger forever. Mm-hmm. Um, but a blood clot is simply a curse because blood has formed in the uterus, the cervix is closed, and then it takes a clot and then a contraction of the uterus for it to come out. So that's a very healthy sign of involution. It may occur during breastfeeding Mm. because that's when the uterus will often contract and cause after pains and and cause you to expel a clot, or it might occur after the person's been lying down for some time and then stands up. Speaking of afterbirth pains, why do they often get worse with subsequent or consecutive pregnancy? Uh, yeah, because ladies. the uterus has more sensation. That it's it's a more of a more effective muscle. The uterus is completely made out of muscle. Mm. So when you have a contraction like it's a muscle as big as your whole thigh contracting and it just gets better at contracting and contracts harder and therefore involutes quicker yeah. uh, and therefore it's more painful. Mm-hmm. The other thing is internal organs, you don't tend to have very good nerve sensation from so that if someone touches you and you close your eyes on the back of the hand you can tell them exactly where they touched you but when it's your internal organs they've never had sensation before Mm. so if Mm, you've had babies they've had sensation before therefore you will localize that sensation more more accurately and it's funny because it is such a difficult to describe it is in that way that you, you can't describe where it is that well, yeah, don't you think? It's just this, like, general ick. Yeah. yeah. And some poor women will get it, you know, even if they walk past another woman feeding or hear another woman's baby crying, they'll get an after pain and it, and oh. it can be very debilitating. And, of course, Especially it's Especially if it's well a busy postnatal ward where there's a baby crying at all times. Yeah. And it's all well and good to say, oh, you can take... Nurofen or Voltaren or something, but you, 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 like you can't take it because it's happening in an instant. Yeah. So really, you'd have to just be taking those sorts of things regularly. Yeah. Um, to avoid it rather than taking it to get rid of it. Yeah. Do you have any tips to help people who have painful intercourse after a deep episiotomy? Yeah. Well, early on after delivery, in women who are breastfeeding or who haven't started ovulating. Yet, the oestrogen levels will be very low, therefore the vagina will be very dry. That's called breastfeeding atrophy or postnatal atrophy. So that may be helpful. What may also be helpful is physiotherapy, um, and they can help with trigger points. And just to encourage the patient that, you know, painful intercourse or dyspareunia after a vaginal delivery is so common almost to be considered normal and that those tissues will will heal and the more often they have intercourse successfully, 
the less uncomfortable it will become. Sometimes after more than one child, you people may find their, what do you call the muscle? Pelvic floor. Your pelvic floor to become very weak mm-hmm. and they may exercise and wee a little bit. Mm-hmm. What would you recommend to, I guess, strengthen these muscles back up? Can you re-strengthen these muscles yeah. back up? And, um, yeah, any tips to help Yeah, that? so there's two different issues there. There's pelvic floor strength, which may lead to continence issues. Um, so you wee when you laugh, cough, sneeze, exercise. And there's prolapse, which is where the vagina or the cervix and uterus are bulging down. Now, certainly the pelvic floor can be strengthened, particularly from the point of view of urinary symptoms by doing pelvic floor exercises. And the best way to get that up and running is to properly see a pregnancy and postnatal physiotherapist and do proper pelvic floor exercises. Okay. Oh, this is a common one. How long after birth can you go swimming? Uh, Well, I mean, if someone has a painful episiotomy, we're happy for them to have a bath that day, a salt bath. Um, So certainly there's no dangers to immersing yourself in water after giving birth vaginally or by caesarean section. It's just that if you're having a lot of bleeding, you might have to wear a pad, which you might feel a little bit uncomfortable about going down to the beach with yeah, a very large pad on. And then so, if you go swimming, then it feels yeah. like a boat. And if it's in salt water, I mean, that's good for an episiotomy. That's why you have salt baths. So number one, I'd say make sure the quality of the water is good mm-hmm. so it's a properly, you know, um, chlorinated pool or you're in beach water where, you know, the water is safe and clean. Mm. But really... As long as you're able to get yourself comfortable with how you're protecting yourself, I'd be happy for you to swim anytime. Yeah. Okay, great. Why do some women get their periods back as early as four weeks postpartum, yeah. even if they're breastfeeding? Yeah. Look, breastfeeding works by the prolactin level rising and the prolactin rising, which is made by the pituitary, reduces the stimulation of follicle-stimulating hormone which is what brings on ovulation. And for some reason, in some women, breastfeeding and raised prolactin level just switches off ovulation. So if they breastfed for three years, they wouldn't have a period. Mm -hmm. And in some women, that suppression is very weak and they will, as you say, get a period, maybe not in four weeks after delivery, but perhaps in about eight weeks, and then get a regular cycle back. And, of course, the big warning for them is, if they're having regular periods, they're probably fertile. So, I was going to say that means that probably in those people, breastfeeding isn't even a relative contraception. No, no. I've never heard of this before. Someone was saying that postpartum they had labia minora and clitoris shrinkage. Uh, By a surgeon? I've never, exp- I've never experienced <laughs> no, it that. Happened um, naturally. <laughs> usually, that those that part of the anatomy would get larger, Mm. not smaller, um, unless this, again, refers to the immediate postnatal period where the oestrogen levels are very low. But um, I've not experienced people coming back 
with tiny vaginas. Describing that part of the anatomy being small. Mm -hmm. That's all. Thank you. That's all. Just it was just a quick chat. Three to four hours. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Dr. Timmy, for coming back, for hearing our cries and giving the people what they want. So thank you very much. Congratulations on the people that you've got to come on. Not me, but the other other (laughs) people that you've got to come on the show because, as I said at the start, I think it's really important that a podcast like this reflects a very wide range of people and a wide range of experiences and stops people from trying to become so rigid in what they want from their pregnancy and delivery and recognise that everyone's different and everyone's story is going to be different and everyone... uh, you know, needs to be confident with the people looking after them so that they can achieve the safest possible delivery. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a review. If you didn't, good on you. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.